It says right here that they came here testing him. 
One translation in Mark actually says they came to dispute with them. These guys were angry. They were upset. So they come asking questions. The problem is that word ask is a pretty strong word. You have New Living Translation out there that says they came demanding answers. It literally means to interrogate. So here are these two groups of people team up. They're coming, demanding answers from Jesus, interrogating him, testing him, disputing with him, being angry. What are they demanding? Show us a sign. Jesus' response to this in the book of Mark is that he sighs deeply. You know why? What else does this guy need to show them? He just fed 10,000, 15,000 people. And before that, he fed another 10,000, 15,000 when John the Baptist was in prison, he said, Are you the coming one or should we look for another? Jesus said, Hey, look at my resume. The blind can see, the deaf can hear, the lame can walk. Demons are cast out. Look at all those signs. Look at what I'm doing. And in fact, this isn't the first time they asked him for a sign. They asked for a sign back in Matthew 12, and Jesus said, I'll give you one sign. It's the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the center of the earth. What he's saying is the sign that will be the sign of all signs. That I will die, three days later I will rise again. That's the sign, the only sign you need to see. Now if Jesus really thought that signs would lead to salvation, at this point right now he'd do a little bit of a circus show to get their attention. That's not the purpose of signs and miracles. Signs and miracles are the little day the message. That's all they do. Is they make sure the message comes across clear and they validate it. It's never the purpose of the signs and the miracles to point people towards salvation. The way you get saved is what? God loves you. The Bible says that God has called you. And the Bible says that you are convicted of sin. And you cry out to Jesus to be your Savior. That's what brings you into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Signs and wonders, once again, may validate the message. But the message of the cross is that we're sinners in need of salvation. So at this point here, Jesus is not going to say, You want me to prove I'm the Messiah? Here, I'll do a little bit of a trick. He says, there's been enough signs. You guys just don't want to hear it. You don't want to hear it in any way whatsoever. Verse 2, he answered and said to him, When it's evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah, and he left them in the party. Once again, if those signs would lead to salvation, he would not depart from there. He would stay and do something. He says, you've seen enough evidence, you're choosing to reject it. And he basically is saying is this, how can you guys tell the weather, but you can't see spiritually? You guys are supposed to be the cream of the crop. You guys are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You're the most intelligent spiritual men walking the earth at this time. You can tell the weather forecast, but you can't see spiritually. And the same thing still happens today. We have made amazing advances in medicine and science and space exploration, but they still can't see Jesus. They just can't. I know guys that can fix a car, they can build a house, they can repair a washer and dryer, they can do anything mechanical, intelligent, etc., but they can't see Jesus. Even my kids can look to the West and see the clouds getting darker, and see the wind picking up, and say, Dad, a storm is coming. Jesus is trying to say here, but you have to have your eyes open spiritually. That's what we're talking about right here. And he says, listen, if you want a sign, I'll give you a sign. I'm going to die, and rise again three days later. That's the sign I'm going to give you. Now keep that in the back of your mind, because we're going to build on that point. 
verse 5. Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. And Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the saints. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets you took up? Nor the seven loaves of the four thousand and how many large baskets you took up? How is it you do not understand that I do not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the love of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the love of bread, but the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now he's saying to his disciples, I want to make sure you guys understand. So here they are, they're getting ready to take off after this dispute. And he says, hey guys, verse 6, take heed, beware of the love of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And these disciples, these really smart disciples, stop and say, oh, he doesn't want to see baked goods that the Pharisees and the Sadducees make. He's worried about the Pharisees and Sadducees' baked goods. Jesus says, no guys, you're, you're not getting this in any way whatsoever. Oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourself because you have brought no bread? Jesus says, do you really think that's what I'm talking about? You really think I'm talking about you don't have enough bread and don't eat the bread that the Pharisees have baked today? Don't accept bread from a stranger type thing? No. What I'm saying is this. Guys, verse 9. Do you not yet understand or remember? Those two words. Understand and remember. Because do you not understand? Have you guys not seen it either? You just saw me feed 5,000, which is actually 10 to 15,000 people. You just saw me feed 4,000, which is 10 to 15,000 people. You guys aren't getting it either. See, the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't get it. And now he's saying, disciples, you don't get it. But he says, I need you to understand and to remember. And look at those words again one more time in verse 9. Because I need you to understand and remember. Now, those words are very important. The word understand is used four times in the last two chapters. Jesus, at this point, in these two chapters, is trying to say, guys, I want you to really get who I am. Do you understand? Now, here's the problem with understanding who Jesus is. Romans 3 tells us that there's no man who understands. Now, think about that. Here's the task. God is saying, I want you to understand who I am and what I'm doing. Oh, but by the way, no man will ever understand who I am or what I'm doing. Now, there's a big problem right there, isn't there? That's why in Luke 24, Jesus says that he opens our eyes to understand. He opens our eyes. And then Paul says in 2 Timothy 2 that you need to pray that the Lord gives you understanding because we're not capable of doing this on our own. We're not. There has to be a Holy Spirit influence here. There has to be the Lord moving and working in our lives when he calls us. And he says, I want you. Are we willing to understand? There's a great passage in the book of Psalms that I love. It says, open my eyes, Lord, that I may see your wondrous work. I know a lot of people that walk through life, and they're not looking to understand. They're not. They're just living their life. They're not looking for spiritual matters. They're not looking for God and things. They're not looking for any of that. They're just going through life, just like all of us. I firmly believe you can have two people that claim to be a Christian, claim to be a believer. They can see the exact same thing. Situation, scenario, life. The one with his eyes open will see the Lord moving and working and give God the glory. The one who doesn't will just see life. Well, just see, well, that's just what happens. Jesus says, that's the Pharisees and Sadducees. They're not getting it. But disciples, do you guys get it? Are your eyes really open to what I'm doing? And one of the questions we need to ask this morning is, 
do you really have your eyes opening to the Lord moving and working in your life? I mean, do you really get it? That what's happening, what's going on around you, you are just a player in this big, big scene that the Lord is moving and working. Do we see that? Do we understand what we're doing and what's going on? And the next one is, verse 9, do you remember? Now that's a hard one. Do you remember? See, the Lord is basically telling the disciples here, listen guys, do you think we just happened to feed the 5,000 one week and just happened to feed the 4,000 the week after? Do you really think that just happened? He goes, no, those things happened for a reason, to teach you something to remember. Remember what we talked about last week? If you keep going through the same scenarios and tests again and again, what's happening? It's time for the Lord saying, you're not passing the test yet. So if you're the person that says, why do I always run into this at work? Why does this always happen to me in life? Why is this? Maybe the Lord is trying to teach you something. It's a test that hasn't been passed yet. So do you remember what you've gone through? And do you stop and have understanding and say, Lord, what are you trying to do in my life? Now some of you at this moment may stop and say, James, I don't remember anything. I understand that. There's times I go out and I do my devotions in the morning. Five minutes later after the devotions, I can stop and say, I don't even remember what I read. But then that afternoon, I'm talking to someone, and guess what? It comes back just like that. Now, how does that work? Because in John 14, verse 26, the Bible says, The Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance those things that Jesus taught So isn't that great? You don't have to remember about remembering. The Holy Spirit will take care of it. Does that mean you don't have to do anything? No. Because Paul also wrote in 2 Timothy to be diligent, to be a worker that can divide the word of truth. I firmly believe the way the system works is this. I get up in the morning and I say, Lord, I have no understanding. I can only understand your will for my life. I only can stand your word. I can only stand the mission you give me through you. Open my eyes to see the world through your view. Open my eyes to do what you want me to do. So now I can have understanding through the Lord. Now, Lord, as I read your words, I study this out, I want to be a worker, rightly dividing the word of truth. I will mark verses, I will underline them, I will take notes, I will do whatever. But Lord, your Holy Spirit has to bring it back into remembrance for me. And Lord, just use that, bring it back whenever you want, because I'm just a vessel for you. But if you get up in the morning, and you just grab your emotional, and it's okay, read, done, move on, you're not going to get anything. If you come to church on a Sunday or a Wednesday or just listen to a message and there's not that spiritual moment of war, I want to understand, you're not going to get anything out of it. You know, I've read so many times in so many devotionals about how when you get ready to get serious with the Lord, they always say, you get your notebook out, get your pen out. Why? Because if it's that important to spend time with the Lord, if he wants to speak to you, then it's important enough to write down. It's important enough to remember, to mark, to underline, to highlight, whatever you like to do. I love going back and looking through my journal at the stuff that I've written down over the months. It's like, wow, Lord, you're moving. You're moving. I'm glad I wrote this down because, to be quite honest, I want to remember that answer to prayer. I want to remember that minor miracle that just happened. And it reminds me. So understanding and remembrance, but once again, here's the catch. You've got to choose that it's important to you. You've got to say, Lord, I understand that I can only understand Lord, I can only remember through you. So, Lord, you need to be the Lord of my life, which then takes us to verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am, the Son of Man? And 
So he said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, another Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now we're going to stop right there. Now, Jesus' response to Peter's answers is amazing, it's deep, it's important, and we're going to get to that next week. But we need to stop right here at verse 15. But who do you say that I am? That's what you've got to stop and ask yourselves. Who is Jesus to you? That's, that's the most important question you'll ever face in your life, is who is Jesus to you? And that is the most important question you could ever ask anybody in the Bible. Who is Jesus to you? As I said at the beginning of the message, you will stand before the Lord. You're either standing in front of him as a sinner waiting to be judged, or a sinner whose sins have been forgiven. There, are, there is no other option right there. And your response to who is Jesus to me is going to dictate that. Now you've heard this called many times before. C.S. Lewis is the one that made it most famous. But it's been talked about for years before C.S. Lewis is the whole idea of liar, lunatic, or Lord. This idea that Jesus has to be something. And so you take all the words that Jesus said. Even most atheists will agree that Jesus existed as an historical figure. So therefore, if this man existed, and he said these things about him, who is he? Say, so is he a liar? Was he just making up a story? Was he a lunatic? This guy really thought he was the son of God? He was crazy? Or is he really Lord? He's Lord. He's God and God. Now, by default, if you think that Jesus is a liar and his words weren't true, I don't know why you're here this morning. I don't say that today. If you think he's crazy and a lunatic, I don't know why you're here. Why would you spend the time, energy, and effort to come to church? So kind of by default, by being here, you're kind of saying, I think he's Lord. And that means he's your master. That means he's everything in your life. That means your calendar doesn't control your life. Your emotions don't control your life. Your situations don't control your life. Your own fleshly desires don't control your life. Because he is your Lord. He is your master. You're just a servant to that. And really what we're saying is that if he is Jesus, he is Lord, that means it's no longer my life. I don't even exist in this world. Think about this for a second. Put this all together now. I am an eternal being that just happens to be spending time in this world for a little bit. This isn't even my home, according to the Bible. I'm just an ambassador. I just represent Jesus Christ. So therefore, when the world wants to suck me into its stuff, nah, it's not my home. It's not my world. I'm not going to live here forever. I'm not going to let that calendar of events dictate everything I do anymore because I'm really just a servant of the Lord, and I'm just here for a little bit. I'm here to do His will. I'm not going to let the emotions of this world, the ups and downs, the craziness, the sadness, the depression. No, nah, I'm not going to let myself get into this world that wants to pull me down because I'm a child of the Lord. I'm not going to get into this drama of this or that because, yeah, it doesn't matter in the whole scheme of heaven and hell. The only thing that matters is whether I know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and do you know Christ? Now, does this mean that we all just run to the hills and twiddle our thumbs and Jesus returns? No, Christ said, occupy till I come. Even though you are an ambassador, this is not your home, you still have a job. You have a calling. Your calling, your job may be to literally go to work tonight and represent Jesus Christ and all you say and do. Your calling may be to go to school here in the next couple of weeks and represent Christ. Your calling may be to be the best homemaker, helpmate, wife that God has called you to be. Your calling may be to be the best father and godly leader. Let's not overcomplicate Christianity. 
One of my favorite verses in the Bible in Corinthians is where Jesus talks about the simplicity of Jesus. <laughs> Wherever you're planted, just grow and represent Christ there. Be it at work, be it at home, be it at school. But when you really stop and separate yourself from this world, you no longer have to have the world control you. And then all of a sudden you stop and you realize, I'm free. The most freeing thing I can do in this world is to choose to be a servant of Jesus Christ. Because when I choose to serve Him, I am now set free from all the burden. I'm set free from all the, what's the word I guess I'm looking for? Expectations of the world. I'm an eternal being living on this planet, representing Jesus Christ in whatever way He's called me. And when you look at it in that mindset, all of a sudden, everything goes to the lens of eternity. It's not about getting up and going to work. It's not about landscaping. It's not about bills. It's about everything goes through the lens of eternity. And when you really get that mindset, there's a joy and a peace that all of a sudden I'm free from this. Wow, I can just live for Christ and what I'm doing instead. You've heard me say many times before, when I, when I go into a store, I try to have a conversation with whoever the cashier is to open up the door and see. And when all of a sudden it's like it becomes exciting. I know this sounds really dumb, that's okay. I get excited over which lane to pick because it's just more what's it going to be. So I was at Walmart the last week and I got up and the gal's name was Karis. Now Karis, that means a dumb. So I said, Karis, that's a very interesting name. She goes, yeah. And I said, do, do you know what it means? She goes, yeah, it means grace. And I said, yeah, it's a great word for grace. And she goes, and everybody needs grace. It's like, amen. So we have this great conversation about grace and salvation. And you know, it's one of those things of just there's other people listening. It's like, wow, Lord, amen. Brother and sister talking to Lord. A couple days later, I go to this store. And the gal check out her house. And goes, Phoebe. Phoebe. That's a really neat name. Like, did you get that name from the Bible? No, my mom watched a soap opera. <laughs> not every time he's available, but I'm willing. I'm willing. But it's just being open, where all of a sudden it's not my life. I just had a couple over from church this week, we were just sitting outside talking, and this concept of free time came up. We don't have free time. That's not like, oh, I'm so busy, I have no free time. No. There is no James time. There's no dawn time. There's no free time. We are servants of the Lord, and whatever he calls us to do at that moment, we're willing to do. That is not burdensome. That's not slavery. It's a willing bondservant to Christ. Where I step away from this world and say, I no longer will allow the expectations of the calendar of the world to control my life in any way whatsoever. If he is my Lord, then he is my Lord. It's being set free. Now, are you willing to do that? Because the truth is, you're going to be weird. People are going to think you're weird. People are going to think you're strange. Because all of a sudden, you no longer are thinking about earthly, you're thinking about eternity. You're no longer thinking about daily interactions, you're thinking about divine interactions. So the earth, as the old hymn says, grows strangely. Is everything else is focused upon Christ and how can I serve you today? And maybe the way I'm serving you today is by taking my boys back to the crib. We're going to catch bullfrogs and Maybe the way I'm going to serve you today is I'm going to talk to the cashier. 
Maybe they will serve you today as my mother and my wife is part of the church and trying to take care of stuff. Maybe I'm going to serve you today by doing hospital visits, doing counseling, doing study prep. I don't know. But it's so freeing just to step back and say, well, what do you want me to do today? So when you go to work, you're not going to work, you're going to the missions field for eight, nine, ten hours. Actually, you're a paid missionary. I know a lot of missionaries that wish they were paid like that. When you go to school, you're not going to school. So are you now, we've been talking on Wednesday night about works. If you haven't been with us, I encourage you to copy the CD or listen to it online. We're not talking about works that save. We're not talking about works that keep you safe. We're not talking about anything with that. We're talking about practical Christianity. What does it mean to really live for Christ practically? Because God is so often speaking in generalities. Love everybody. Okay, what does that look like? Well, on Wednesdays, we've been talking about specifics. How can I specifically minister to this person? So what does it look like in verse 15? But who do you say that I am? What does it look like that Jesus is Lord of your life and you no longer allow the world to control you? Because we still have bills to pay. We still have things to do. We have responsibilities in this world. Occupy till I come. But what does it look like? I want to talk to you about this. Go with me. Go with me to John 6. John 6. We're going to look at a chapter, chapter and a half in the life of Jesus. And in some of the stuff we talked about just a couple of weeks ago, feeding the 5,000, etc. But what does it look like practically in the ministry of Christ? John 6, verse 1. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is in the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed, and those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover feast of the Jews was near. Now let's stop right there. I'm gonna I'm gonna take into my mind for a little bit. This is what I see when I read things and when I study things. Okay, verse two. There's a great multitude following Jesus. Some of the stuff you've heard me teach on before. People want Christ. They want him. They want to be near him. They want to touch him. They want to be healed. So the great response of Jesus to this multitude following is verse 3, to go up the mountain. Did you catch that? There's a multitude that wants him. And his response is to get as far away as he can from them. As we mentioned last week, imagine you have your maimed, your lame, your mute friend, son, daughter, I don't know, and you know Jesus is there. And so you're going to carry them up this mountain to Christ. Why couldn't Jesus just bend down in the plains? Why couldn't he have a system of take a number? Why was Jesus going up in the mountains? Well, you know he was going up in the mountains from the other Gospels. Number one, because he was tired. He wanted to get away for a little bit. And number two, he wanted to teach his disciples. He wanted to get away from his disciples and teach them. So he sees the multitude. What does he do? Verse 5, Jesus lifted up his eyes, seeing a great multitude coming toward him. He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? As you've heard me say many times, if Jesus ever asks a question, he's not asking a question because he doesn't know the answer. He's asking a probing question. He stops and says, listen, at this moment, it's not about my time. It's about service. It's about the ministry. So what can we learn right there? As a servant of the Lord, you may want to go to the mountaintop and hide. But if the multitude's coming, we love it. You serve him. You minister. You do his life first. I want to put Christ first. Lose the idea of free time. Now, once again, that is not burdensome. That's not this idea of enslaving you. 
it's actually free. Lord, it's all yours. It's all yours. My life is yours. So therefore, you are Lord of my passions, my desires, my wants, my whatever. Because I have never seen a person live their life for themselves and turn out better than would have been if they lived their life for Jesus. I have never seen that. Christ's plan is always the best plan. Trust that. So these multitudes come, he feeds the 5,000, he walks on the water, and then he gets in this great teaching about the bread from heaven. I am the bread of heaven. I'm the one that gives you life. It's a really difficult teaching. A lot of his disciples turn away, and what happens is they don't want to hear this teaching, and so they basically, he goes to the 12 now, we're in verse 67, actually verse 66 of John 6. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. They couldn't handle it. He's asking too much. Think about that. They couldn't handle it. He's asking too much. Have you ever thought about that spiritually? It's like, Lord, I love you, but come on, man. You're asking a lot here. So he says to the twelve, do you also want to go away? Peter's response is amazing in verse 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. What else is there? It's the Lord and nothing else. Who do you say that I am? Why are you going to take our Lord? If you're Lord, what am I doing here fighting for a slice of time? What am I doing here trying to make sure my time is taken care of and my needs and wants are met and my desires? I'm just supposed to die to myself. And when I die to myself, I can finally live. It's the most freeing thing in the world. Now, we've got to talk about this a little bit. So we talk about how we we're not going to get pulled into the world. How can, how can we see this? Okay, now, back to my role. Verse 4. Passover. Passover happens in spring. March, April. Check this out in chapter 7. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. Verse 1. He did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now, the Feast of the Tabernacles was at hand. Feast of the Tabernacles. That's in the fall. Chapter 6 encompasses... Six, seven months. Just let me repeat that. Chapter 6 encompasses a half a year, probably. Now you may say, James, that's still not what Okay. Jesus lived on this earth for 33 years. Of those 33 years, only three years were public ministry. Only three years. That means one-sixth of his public ministry is just one chapter here in John 6. You just read... One-sixth of his public ministry, six months of Jesus' life. Why do I bring this up? Because if you only had three years, three years on this earth to represent the Lord like Christ did, would you spend six months of it in one location? What did he do for that one location? Chapter 6, verse 59. These things he said in the synagogue as he talked to Him. You know what he did for six months with his disciples? He had a little retreat with them. Mm-hmm. This is your first Christian conference. For six months, we're getting away, guys. But people are still going to talk to us. People are still going to minister to us. But we're getting away from the world to grow together. Six months. Okay, but James, what happens when the world wants you? Verse 3, chapter 7. His brothers therefore said, So depart from here and go into Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret, while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. 
These are his brothers coming up and saying, listen, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. You've been over here for six months. You're supposed to be the Messiah. Get out there. Do something. Show yourself. You're just up here in these mountains doing nothing. Jesus' response, verse 6, my time has not yet come. How can he say that? Because he was only caring about what God the Father wanted in his life and nothing else. How often in this world are we swayed and make decisions based on expectations of the world and things like that? What can we learn from Jesus? He took six months to teach with his disciples. And when his own family came and pushed pressure to him, he said, yeah, I'm not doing that. Boy, how many of you can relate to that? Your own family is pushing and pressuring you into things. Well, I need to do it as my parents. I need to do it as my brothers. I need to do it as a... Jesus says, no, I don't need to do that. Because I'm so focused on eternity, not the earth. I'm so focused on Christ, not the calendar. Does this mean, once again, we just hide in the cave? No. He was available. He was talking to people. They came and wanted to be ministered to and minister to them. He had teachings. He had spiritual discussions. But he was not going to move until it was time to move. So was it ever time to move? Verse 10, chapter 7. But when, his, when he, excuse me, when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast. Okay, hold on a second. You spent six months here doing your thing. Your brothers come up and say, listen, enough of the secret stuff, do it openly. Jesus says, yeah, I'm not going to be pushed and pressured into it. His brothers leave, and Jesus says, yep, yeah, now it's time to go. Doesn't that just sound like a bad brotherly fight? You know, I'm not doing it if you tell me to do it. Look at the difference. Verses 3 and 4, they're telling him, do it openly. Verse 10, Jesus says it secretly. As the Lord says, I know what I'm supposed to do. Verse 11, then the Jews saw him at the feast and said, where is he? Verse 12, and there's much complaining among the people concerning him. Some say he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and taught. Now it's time to go public. He was not going to allow anything to dictate his time. He was not going to allow anything to dictate his schedule. He was not going to allow a person, an event, nothing. He was going to do it when it is time. And what does he say? Verse 16, my doctrine is not mine, but he who sent me. It's not about me. It's never about me. It's about Jesus. So what can we learn here from studying this one chapter in the life of Jesus? It's actually six months. It's six months of saying, I'm not going to let the world control me. I'm going to do things when God the Father leads me. I'll still minister. I'll still serve. I'll still teach. I'll still do that. But I'm not going to let the world get the best of me. You know how difficult that is to do? If you're like us, um, this week we're starting school for uh, some of our boys. And Brooklyn Shane, they start school here at the end of the month. All of a sudden, life will get crazy. School, get up at this time, get it done, get done at this time. All of a sudden, our life is controlled now. So does that mean we just kind of buck the whole system? No. It's being blameless. There's rules and regulations that you follow. You make sure you're being blameless in that area. But it's a mental mindset. And all I've been praying about this last few weeks is it's a mental mindset of why are we letting this control our lives? Christ controls our lives. Ministry controls our lives. Not this. Yes, you may have a schedule and you may have hours you have to work. Okay. Be 
prayed up, get ready, go to work, do the best you can for the Lord, come home, and then say, okay, now what? Don't let anything control your life other than Christ. It goes back to Matthew 16. Who do you say that I am? If he is the Lord of your life, let him control every aspect of it. You will be set free from the expectations and burdens of this world. And even though you have chosen willfully as a bondservant to be enslaved to Christ, it's the most freedom you'll ever have. That you can say no when the Lord says no. You can say yes when the Lord says yes. You can go out and do those things that make no sense because you know what? I'm not of this world. This is, I'm an ambassador of Jesus Christ, an eternal being living in this world for a while. So I'm just going to do what my master tells me to do. But who do you say that I am? That's the question we have to ask. And I have to ask you this morning, who is he to you? Because did he lie about all these things about him? Was he just a crazy man? Or is he really Lord? If he's really Lord, there has to be a time where you stop and say, I want you to be Lord of my life and all that I say to you. You may have let yourself rule your life for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, I don't know. After a while, it's like this doesn't work. But what I notice with most Christians is this. They're not really running their life. they kind of got this halfway thing with the Lord. Oh, I love him. It's the most important thing in my life. You know how I show you that he's the most important thing in my life? By doing whatever I want. But that just doesn't work. There's part of this giving of yourself. The Bible calls it a living sacrifice over the end. You may be in a season of life right now that you don't want to be. You may be in situations right now that are very difficult. But at that moment, at that time, the Lord still says, I'm the Lord of your life. Trust me. Let me get you through this. Let's glory and tribulations together. Let's stay focused. Let's have spiritual understanding. Let's remember what he's called us. And let's keep moving forward. But we have to stop and ask ourselves right now, who is Jesus to you? That's the most important question of what we can Let's pray. Lord, if we come to you now, who are you to us? We want you to be the guiding force of our life and everything we do and everything we say. We want to, as a body of Christ, stop and say, this is yours. It's not about us. It's not about harvest fellowship. It's about you, Lord, and representing you. Bless the time with the prayer chain this week. Bless the time that was the seeds that were planted through uh, the back-to-school giveaway and bless the seeds that were planted at the parade yesterday. Lord, we just want to represent you and all we say and do. If there's someone here this morning who is not giving everything to you, show them the freedom and joy of actually dying to themselves. Lord, I pray for those individuals that need to let go and put you first in all things. I pray for those work situations, those marriage situations, those parenting situations where we just need to let go and put you first in all things. You are Lord of all we say and do and help us to live it, Lord. No longer the calendar controlling us, no longer the earth controlling us, but Christ the eternal. And all that we say and all that we do. We lift this up in your name.